welcome to the Blindfold Chess Podcast. It's my birthday today. As a present to myself, I wanted to look back at my favorite chess player, Mikhail Tal. Known for his creativity and attacking play, the magician of Riga was the eighth world champion from 1960 to 1961. He's also known for his improvisation and unpredictability. Sometimes that would backfire, but other times it would lead to brilliancies that are still talked about today. He grew up in Soviet Latvia and began playing chess at the age of six. At the age of 13, he started working with Latvian master Alexander Koblenz. Two years later, in 1951, he qualified for the Latvian championship. In 1953, at the age of 15, he won his first Latvian title. In 1956, his first USSR championship, he finished in a tie for fifth and was criticized for, quote, taking unnecessary risks and having restrictive creative views, end quote. The following year, he won the USSR championship, the youngest to do so at the age of 20. In his first candidates tournament in 1959, he scored first with a score of 20 out of 28, including winning all four games against Bobby Fischer. When playing ball Benko at that tournament, Benko wore dark sunglasses to avert Tal's gaze. In response, Tal borrowed large sunglasses from a member of the crowd to counter-intimidate Benko. At the age of 23, Tal defeated Mikhail Bodvinik in a world championship match 12.5 to 8.5, becoming the youngest world champion. Podvenik then analyzed Tal's games and took back the title in 1961, averting Tal's tactical play, opting instead for slower games or veering toward endgames. Around this point, Tal's health started to impact his play, causing him to slump until his kidney was removed. Once returning to chess, he came back strong with 86 consecutive games without a loss from 1972 to 1973, and then a 95-game streak from 1973 to 1974. That record stood for almost four decades until Ding Lorin broke it with 100 games in 2017 and 2018. Over the course of his career, he played in 21 Soviet championships, winning six times. He was a five-time winner of the International Chess Tournament and an eight-time Soviet Olympiad, winning gold every time he played. Tal had fragile health, was addicted to morphine, chain-smoked, and drank heavily, dying of a hemorrhage in 1992 at the age of 55. Since 2006, the Tal Memorial has been held in his honor. He was slightly ahead of his time by sacrificing material for the initiative and creating problems for his opponents. He was feared to be played because of the possibility of being on the wrong side of a soon-to-be-famous brilliancy. Some of my favorite quotes of his are, Chess, first of all, is art. There are two types of sacrifices, good ones and mine. To play for a draw at any rate with white is to some degree a crime against chess. Later, I began to succeed in decisive games, perhaps because I realized a very simple truth. Not only was I worried, but also my opponent. You must take your opponent into a deep dark forest where 2 plus 2 equals 5, and the path leading out is only wide enough for 1. In today's game, we are looking at a game from the Goglazi Memorial from 1969. Mikhail Tal versus Alexei Sutin. Now, if we're ready, 
Let's begin. 1. Pawn to e4. Pawn to c5. 2. Knight f3. Pawn to e6. 3. Pawn to d4. Pawn c captures d4. 4. Knight captures d4. Pawn to a 6. 5. Bishop d3. Knight e7. 6. Knight c3. Knight b to c6. 7. Knight b3. Knight g6. Knight g6 is not a terribly common move for black in this position. The idea is that black is 1, getting the knight out of the way of the dark square bishop, and 2, trying to add more coverage to the king side because that's where white's pieces are pointing. However, it does have the drawback of being susceptible to an f4, f5 push from white since all of white's pieces are focused on the f5 square. Eight castle kingside. Pawn to b five. Nine bishop e three. Pawn to d six. Ten pawn to f four. Bishop e7. 11. Queen h5. Queen to h5, that is uh, certainly a move. Feel free to pause the podcast to try to figure out what Tal's idea is behind Queen to h5. 12. Rook a to d1. Bishop captures c3. 13. Pawn b captures c3. Queen c7. 14. Rook d2. Knight c to e7. 15. Knight d4. Bishop d7. 16. Pawn to f5. 
there is the F5 break that Tal has been building up to. Question, how many white pieces are targeting F5, and how many black pieces are defending F5? Black has three defenders of f5, the knight on e7, the bishop on d7, and the pawn on e6, whereas white has five attackers, the pawn on e4, the bishop on d3, the knight on d4, the queen on h5, and the rook on f1. With control over the f5 square, we can see very quickly how white's kingside attack will come crashing through. Pawn e captures f5. Seventeen. Pawn to e captures f5. Knight e5. Eighteen. Knight e6. Bishop captures e6. Why did black play bishop captures e6 instead of pawn captures e6? It is because the pawn on f7 is pinned to the king by the queen on h5. Nineteen, pawn f captures e6. Pawn to g6. White's queen is under attack after the move g6. Where would you move the queen? Twenty. Queen captures e5. Pawn d captures e5. Twenty-one. Pawn e captures f7 check. Black resigns. Why did Black resign in this position? Black has three legal moves. If they were to play king to f8, white has bishop to h6 checkmate. If Black steps onto the d-file, they run the risk of a discovered check through bishop f5 check, or they lose a bunch of material with f8 equals queen, check, rook captures f8, rook captures f8, check, king to d7, and rook captures a8. That's why I enjoy Tal's games so much. Sometimes they start off very normal, and then they just explode out of nowhere. In the last five moves of this game, it looked like white was sacrificing a knight, he sacrificed a queen, and essentially mated him in the middle of the board. He does a wonderful job of turning chess into an art form, and I just love that about this game. So that is all that we have for this week. Tune in next time, where we will continue to work on our blindfold skills and look at another game of The Masters.